Section 70 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section 70. A Fascinating Book. Woman's World, November 1888. Mr. Alan Cole's carefully edited translation of Monsieur Lefebure's History of Embroidery and Lace is one of the most fascinating books that has appeared on this delightful subject. Monsieur Lefebure is one of the administrators of the Musée des Arts Décoratifs at Paris, besides being a lace manufacturer, and his work has not merely an important historical value, but as a handbook of technical instruction it will be found of the greatest service by all needlewomen. Indeed, as the translator himself points out, Monsieur Lefebure's book suggests the question whether it is not rather by the needle and the bobbin, than by the brush, the graver, or the chisel, that the influence of woman should assert itself in the arts. In Europe, at any rate, woman is sovereign in the domain of art needlework, and few men would care to dispute with her the right of using those delicate implements so intimately associated with the dexterity of her nimble and slender fingers. Nor is there any reason why the productions of embroidery should not, as Mr. Alan Cole suggests, be placed on the same level with those of painting, engraving, and sculpture. Though there must always be a great difference between those purely decorative arts that glorify their own material, and the more imaginative arts in which the material is, as it were, annihilated, and absorbed into the creation of a new form. In the beautifying of modern houses it certainly must be admitted, indeed it should be more generally recognized than it is, that rich embroidery on hangings and curtains, portieres, couches, and the like, produces a far more decorative and far more artistic effect than can be gained from our somewhat wearisome English practice of covering the walls with pictures and engravings, and the almost complete disappearance of embroidery from dress has robbed modern costume of one of the chief elements of grace and fancy. That, however, a great improvement has taken place in English embroidery during the last ten or fifteen years cannot, I think, be denied. It is shown not merely in the work of individual artists, such as Mrs. Holliday, Miss May Morris, and others, but also in the admirable productions of the South Kensington School of Embroidery, the best, indeed the only really good, school that South Kensington has produced. It is pleasant to note, on turning over the leaves of Monsieur Lefebure's book, that in this we are merely carrying out certain old traditions of early English art. In the seventh century, St. Ethelreda, first abbess of the Monastery of Eli, made an offering to St. Cuthbert of a sacred ornament she had worked with gold and precious stones and the cope and manable of St. Cuthbert, which are preserved at Durham, are considered to be specimens of Opus Anglicanum. In the year 800, the Bishop of Durham allotted the income of a farm of 200 acres for life to an embroideress named Ian Suitha, in consideration of her keeping in repair the vestments of the clergy in his diocese. The battle standard of King Alfred was embroidered by Danish princesses and the Anglo-Saxon Gudric gave Elswit a piece of land on condition that she instructed his daughter in needlework. Queen Mathilda bequeathed to the Abbey of Holy Trinity at Kine a tunic embroidered at Winchester by the wife of one Alderet. And when William presented himself to the English nobles, after the Battle of Hastings, he wore a mantle covered with Anglo-Saxon embroideries, which is probably, Monsieur Lefebure suggests, the same as that mentioned in the inventory of the Bayou Cathedral, where, after the entry relating to the broderie atel, representing the conquest of England, two mantles are described, one of King William, all of gold, powdered with crosses and blossoms of gold, and edged along the lower border with an orphrey of figures. 
The most splendid example of the Opus Anglicanum now in existence is, of course, the Scion Cope at South Kensington Museum. But English work seems to have been celebrated all over the continent. Pope Innocent IV so admired the splendid vestments worn by the English clergy in 1246 that he ordered similar articles from Cistercian monasteries in England. St. Dunstan, the artistic English monk, was known as a designer for embroideries, and the stole of St. Thomas a Becket is still preserved in the cathedral at Sens, and shows us the interlaced scroll forms used by Anglo-Saxon illuminators. How far this modern artistic revival of rich and delicate embroidery will bear fruit depends, of course, almost entirely on the energy and study that women are ready to devote to it. But I think it must be admitted that all our decorative arts in Europe at present have at least this element of strength, that they are in immediate relationship with the decorative arts of Asia. Wherever we find in European history a revival of decorative art, it has, I fancy, nearly always been due to Oriental influence and contact with Oriental nations. Our own keenly intellectual art has more than once been ready to sacrifice real decorative beauty either to imitative presentation or to ideal motive. It has taken upon itself the burden of expression, and has sought to interpret the secrets of thought and passion. In its marvellous truth of presentation it has found its strength, and yet its weakness is there also. It is never with impunity that an art seeks to mirror life. If truth has her revenge upon those who do not follow her, she is often pitiless to her worshippers. In Byzantium the two arts met. Greek art, with its intellectual sense of form and its quick sympathy with humanity, Oriental art, with its gorgeous materialism, its frank rejection of imitation, its wonderful secrets of craft and color, its splendid textures, its rare metals and jewels, its marvelous and priceless traditions. They had indeed met before, but in Byzantium they were married, and the sacred tree of the Persians, the palm of Zoroaster, was embroidered on the hem of the garments of the Western world. Even the iconoclasts, the Philistines of theological history, who in one of those strange outbursts of rage against beauty that seemed to occur only amongst European nations, rose up against the wonder and magnificence of the new art, served merely to distribute its secrets more widely, and in the Liber Pontificalis, written in 687 by Athanasius, the librarian, we read of an influx into Rome of gorgeous embroideries, the work of men who had arrived from Constantinople and from Greece. The triumph of the Mussulman gave the decorative art of Europe a new departure, that very principle of their religion that forbade the actual representation of any object in nature being of the greatest artistic service to them, though it was not, of course, strictly carried out. The Saracens introduced into Sicily the art of weaving silken and golden fabrics, and from Sicily the manufacture of fine stuffs spread to the north of Italy, and became localized in Genoa, Florence, Venice, and other towns. A still greater art movement took place in Spain under the Moors and Saracens, who brought over workmen from Persia to make beautiful things for them. Monsieur Le Febure tells us of Persian embroidery penetrating as far as Andalusia, and Almeria, like Palermo, had its Hotel de Tiraz, which rivaled the Hotel de Tiraz at Baghdad, Tiraz being the generic name for ornamental tissues and costumes made with them. Spangles, those pretty little discs of gold, silver, or polished steel, used in certain embroidery for dainty glinting effects, were a Saracenic invention, and Arabic letters often took the place of letters in the Roman characters for use in inscriptions upon embroidered robes and middle-aged tapestries, their decorative value being so much greater. The Book of Crafts by Etienne Boileau, provost of the merchants in 1258 to 1268, contains a curious enumeration of the different craft guilds of Paris, 
among which we find the tapissiers, or makers of the tapis saracinois, or saracen cloths, who say that their craft is for the service only of churches, or great men like kings and counts. And indeed, even in our own day, nearly all our words descriptive of decorative textures and decorative methods point to an oriental origin. What the inroads of the Mohammedans did for Sicily and Spain, the return of the Crusaders did for the other countries of Europe. The nobles who left for Palestine clad in armor came back in the rich stuffs of the East, and their costumes, pouches, almonières saracinoises, and caparisons excited the admiration of the needleworkers of the West. Matthew Paris says that at the sacking of Antioch in 1098, gold, silver, and priceless costumes were so equally distributed among the Crusaders that many who the night before were famishing and imploring relief suddenly found themselves overwhelmed with wealth. And Robert de Clare tells us of the wonderful fetes that followed the capture of Constantinople. The 13th century, as Monsieur Lefebure points out, was conspicuous for an increased demand in the West for embroidery. Many crusaders made offerings to churches of plunder from Palestine. And St. Louis, on his return from the First Crusade, offered thanks at St. Denis to God for mercies bestowed on him during his six years' absence and travel, and presented some richly embroidered stuffs, to be used on great occasions, as coverings to the reliquaries containing the relics of holy martyrs. European embroidery, having thus become possessed of new materials and wonderful methods, developed on its own intellectual and imitative lines, inclining as it went on to the purely pictorial, and seeking to rival painting, and to produce landscapes and figure subjects with elaborative perspectives and subtle aerial effects. A fresh Oriental influence, however, came through the Dutch and the Portuguese, and the famous Compagnie des Grandes, and Monsieur Lefebvre gives an illustration of a door hanging now in the Cluny Museum, where we find the French fleur-de-lis intermixed with Indian ornament. The hangings of Madame Maintenon's room at Fontainebleau, which were embroidered at Saint-Cyr, represent Chinese scenery upon a jonquil yellow ground. Clothes were sent out ready-cut to the east to be embroidered, and many of the delightful coats of the period of Louis XV and Louis XVI owe their dainty decoration to the needles of Chinese artists. In our own day the influence of the east is strongly marked. Persia has sent us her carpets for patterns, and Kashmir her lovely shawls, and India her dainty muslins finely worked with gold thread palmates, and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings. We are beginning now to dye by oriental methods, and the silk robes of China and Japan have taught us new wonders of color combination, and new subtleties of delicate design. Whether we have yet learned to make a wise use of what we have acquired is less certain. If books produce an effect, this book of Monsieur Lefebvre should certainly make us study with still deeper interest the whole question of embroidery, and by those who already work with their needles, it will be found full of most fertile suggestion and most admirable advice. Even to read the marvellous works of embroidery that were fashioned in bygone ages is pleasant. Time has kept a few fragments of Greek embroidery of the 4th century B.C. for us. One is figured in Monsieur Lefebvre's book, a chain-stitch embroidery of yellow flax, upon a mulberry-coloured worsted material, with graceful spirals and palmetto patterns, and another, a tapestried cloth powdered with ducks, was reproduced in Woman's World some months ago for an article by Mr. Alan Cole. Now and then we find in the tomb of some dead Egyptian a piece of delicate work. In the treasury at Ratisbon is preserved a specimen of Byzantine embroidery, on which the Emperor Constantine is depicted riding a white palfrey, and receiving homage from the east and west. Metz has a red silk cope wrought with great eagles, the gift of Charlemagne, 
and by you the needle-wrought epic of Queen Matilda. But where is the great crocus-coloured robe, wrought for Athena, on which the gods fought against the giants? Where is the huge valerium that Nero stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, on which was represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by steeds? How one would like to see the curious table-napkins wrought for Heliogabalus, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast, or the mortuary cloth of King Chilperic, with its three hundred golden bees, or the fantastic robes that excited the indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were embroidered with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks, hunters, all, in fact, that painters can copy from nature. Charles of Orléans had a coat, on the sleeves of which were embroidered the verses of a song, beginning, Madame, je suis tout joyeux. The musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note, of square shape in those days, formed with four pearls. The room prepared in the palace at Rum for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy was decorated with thirteen hundred and twenty-one papagots, parrots, made embroidery and blazoned with the king's arms, and five hundred and sixty-one butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the queen's arms, the whole worked in fine gold. Catherine de' Medici had a morning bed made for her of black velvet, embroidered with pearls, and powdered with crescents and suns. Its curtains were of damask, with leafy wreaths and garlands figured upon a gold and silver ground, and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls, and it stood in a room hung with rows of the queen's devices cut in black velvet on cloth of silver. Louis the Fourteenth had gold-embroidered caryatides fifteen feet high in his apartment. The state-bed of Sobieski, king of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade, embroidered in turquoises and pearls, with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased and profusely set with enameled and jewelled medallions. He had taken it from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood under it. The Duchess de la Ferte wore a dress of reddish-brown velvet, the skirt of which, adjusted in graceful folds, was held up by big butterflies made of Dresden china. The front was a tablier of cloth of silver, upon which was embroidered an orchestra of musicians arranged in a pyramidal group, consisting of a series of six ranks of performers, with beautiful instruments wrought in raised needlework. Into the night go one and all, as Mr. Henley sings in his charming ballad of dead actors. Many of the facts related by Monsieur Lefebvre about the embroiders' guilds are also extremely interesting. Etienne Boileau, in his book of crafts, to which I have already alluded, tells us that a member of the guild was prohibited from using gold of less value than eight sous, about six shillings, the skein. He was bound to use the best silk, and never to mix thread with silk, because that made the work false and bad. The test or trial piece prescribed for a worker who was the son of a master embroiderer was a single figure, a sixth of the natural size, to be shaded in gold, whilst one not the son of a master was required to produce a complete incident with many figures. The Book of Crafts also mentions cutters out and stencilers and illuminators amongst those employed in the industry of embroidery. In 1551 the Parisian Corporation of Embroiderers issued a notice that, for the future, the colouring and representations of nude figures and faces should be done in three or four gradations of carnation-dyed silk, and not, as formerly, in white silks. During the fifteenth century every household of any position retained the services of an embroiderer by the year. The preparation of colours also, whether for painting or for dyeing threads and textile fabrics, was a matter which, Monsieur Lefebvre points out, 
received close attention from the artists of the Middle Ages. Many undertook long journeys to obtain the more famous recipes, which they filed, subsequently adding to and correcting them as experience dictated. Nor were great artists above making and supplying designs for embroidery. Raphael made designs for Francis I, and Boucher for Louis XV, and in the Ambras collection at Vienna is a superb set of sacerdotal robes from designs with brothers Van Eyck and their pupils. Early in the sixteenth century books of embroidery designs were produced, and their success was so great that in a few years French, German, Italian, Flemish, and English publishers spread broadcast books of design made by their best engravers. In the same century, in order to give the designers opportunity of studying directly from nature, Jean Robin opened a garden with conservatories, in which he cultivated strange variety of plants then but little known in our latitudes. The rich brocades and brocadelles of the time are characterized by the introduction of large flowery patterns with pomegranates and other fruits of fine foliage. The second part of Monsieur Lefebvre's book is devoted to the history of lace, and though some may not find it quite as interesting as the earlier portion, it will more than repay perusal, and those who still work in this delicate and fanciful art will find many valuable suggestions in it, as well as a large number of exceedingly beautiful designs. Compared to embroidery, Lace seems comparatively modern. Monsieur Lefebvre and Mr. Alan Cole tell us that there is no reliable or documentary evidence to prove the existence of lace before the 15th century. Of course, in the East, light tissues such as gauzes, muslins, and nets were made at very early times, and were used as veils and scarfs after the manner of subsequent laces, and women enriched them with some sort of embroidery, or varied the openness of them by here and there drawing out threads. The threads of fringes seem also to have been plaited and knotted together, and the borders of one of the many fashions of Roman toga were open, reticulated weaving. The Egyptian museum at the Louvre has a curious network embellished with glass beads, and the monk Reginald, who took part in the opening of the tomb of St. Cuthbert at Durham in the 12th century, writes that the saint's shroud had a fringe of linen threads an inch long, surmounted by a border worked upon the threads with representations of birds and pairs of beasts, there being between each pair a branching tree, a survival of the palm of Zoroaster, to which I have before alluded. Our authors, however, do not in these examples recognize lace, the production of which involves more refined and artistic methods, and postulates a combination of skill and varied execution carried to a higher degree of perfection. Lace, as we know it, seems to have had its origin in the habit of embroidering linen, White embroidery on linen has, as Monsieur Lefebvre remarks, a cold and monotonous aspect, that with coloured threads is brighter and gayer in effect, but is apt to fade in frequent washing. But white embroidery relieved by open spaces in, or shapes cut from, the linen ground, is possessed of an entirely new charm, and from a sense of this the birth may be traced of an art in the result of which happy contrasts are effected between ornamental details of close texture and others of open work. Soon also was suggested the idea that, instead of laboriously withdrawing threads from stout linen, it would be more convenient to introduce a needle-made pattern into an open network ground, which was called a lassis. Of this kind of embroidery many specimens are extant. The Cluny Museum possesses a linen cap said to have belonged to Charles V, and an elbe of linen drawn thread work, supposed to have been made by Anne of Bohemia, 1527, is preserved in the cathedral at Prague. Catherine de' Medici had a bed draped with squares of resul, or lasses, and it is recorded that the girls and servants of her household consumed much time in making squares of resul. 
the interesting pattern books for open ground embroidery, of which the first was published in 1527 by Pierre Quinty of Cologne, supply us with the means of tracing the stages in the transition from white thread embroidery to needlepoint lace. We meet in them a style of needlework which differs from embroidery in not being wrought upon a stuff foundation. It is, in fact, true lace, done, as it were, in the air, both ground and pattern being entirely produced by the lace-maker. The elaborate use of lace in costume was, of course, largely stimulated by the fashion of wearing ruffs, and their companion cuffs or sleeves. Catherine de' Medici introduced one Frederick Vinciolo to come from Italy and make ruffs and gadrooned collars, the fashion of which she started in France. And Henry III was so punctilious over his ruffs that he would iron and goffer his cuffs and collars himself, rather than see their pleats limp and out of shape. The pattern books also gave a great impulse to the art. Monsieur Lefebvre mentions German books, with patterns of eagles, heraldic emblems, hunting scenes, and plants and leaves belonging to northern vegetation, and Italian books, in which the motifs consist of oleander blossoms, and elegant wreaths and scrolls, landscapes with mythological scenes, and hunting episodes, less realistic than the northern ones, in which appear fawns, and nymphs or amorini shooting arrows. With regard to these patterns, Monsieur Lefebvre notices a curious fact. The oldest painting in which lace is depicted is that of a lady, by Carpaccio, who died in 1523. The cuffs of the lady are edged with a narrow lace, the pattern of which reappears in Veselio's Corona, a book not published until 1591. This particular pattern was therefore in use at least eighty years before it got into circulation with other published patterns. It was not, however, till the seventeenth century that lace acquired a really independent character and individuality, and Monsieur Duplessis states the production of the more noteworthy of early laces owes more to the influence of men than to that of women. The reign of Louis the Fourteenth witnessed the production of the most stately needlepoint laces, the transformation of Venetian point, and the growth of Point d'Alencon, d'Argentan, de Bruxelles, and d'Angleterre. The king, aided by Colbert, determined to make France the centre, if possible, for lace manufacture, sending for this purpose both to Venice and to Flanders for workers. The studio of the Gobelins supplied designs. The dandies had their huge rabbitos or bands falling from beneath the chin over the breast, and great prelates like Bossuet and Fenelon wore their wonderful albs and rochettes. It is related of a collar made at Venice for Louis the Fourteenth that the lace workers, being unable to find sufficiently fine horsehair, employed some of their own hairs instead, in order to secure that marvellous delicacy of which they aimed at producing. In the eighteenth century, Venice, finding that laces of lighter texture were sought after, set herself to make rose point, and at the court of Louis Fifteenth, the choice of lace was regulated by still more elaborate etiquette. The revolution, however, ruined many of the manufacturers. Alençon survived, and Napoleon encouraged it, and endeavoured to renew the old rules about the necessity of wearing point lace at court receptions. A wonderful piece of lace, powdered over with devices of bees, and costing forty thousand francs, was ordered. It was begun for the Empress Josephine, but in the course of its making her escutcheons were replaced by those of Marie-Louise. Monsieur Lefebvre concludes his interesting history by stating very clearly his attitude toward machine-made lace. It would be an obvious loss to art, he says, should the making of lace by hand become extinct. For machinery, as skillfully devised as possible, cannot do what the hand does. It can give us the results of processes, not the creations of artistic handicraft. 
Art is absent where formal calculation pretends to supersede emotion. It is absent where no trace can be detected of intelligence guiding handicraft, whose hesitancies even possess peculiar charm. Cheapness is never commendable in respect of things which are not absolute necessities. It lowers artistic standard. These are admirable remarks, and with them we take leave of this fascinating book, with its delightful illustrations, its charming anecdotes, its excellent advice. Mr. Alan Cole deserves the thanks of all who are interested in art for bringing this book before the public in so attractive and so inexpensive a form. Embroidery and Lace Their Manufacture and History from the Remotest Antiquity to the Present Day Translated and Enlarged by Alan S. Cole From the French of Ernest Lefebure Gravel and Company End of Section 70 A Fascinating Book